Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bridge Street Capital Partners is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital market transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raises, please send them your details via an email to invest at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention The Bip Show in your message. Now, on with the show. How are you now? You're listening to the all-new BIP Show, Season 4, Episode 2. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder that all the financial information in this podcast is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. Coincidentally, that is what I do. My name is James Whelan. I am uh, the investment manager of the VFS Group Global Macro Fund. My guest today is David Sikorsky. Uh, G'day, David, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Carrara Capital. Uh, He has over 20 years investment experience and extensive experience across asset allocation, portfolio management, macroeconomic analysis, equity research, and a whole host of other things. Prior to founding Carrara, David was CEO, CIO, (laughs) CIO, and Portfolio Manager of Concentrated Leaders Fund. CLF was the ASX code. Um, He was also CIO of Crestone where he chaired the investment committee and responsible for asset allocation, house view, global security lists, and uh, recommended managed funds, kind of a big deal. Prior to this, he was head of investment strategy at UBS Wealth Management, which we had a nickname for you guys when I was in the operations team at, at UBS and the investment bank, which then became Cresto. The date is the 3rd of March, 2022 AD, and we are recording this at about quarter past three on this Thursday afternoon. David, thank you for joining us today. How are you? Great, thank you. Uh, now, I'll start with some random keywords that appeared on my page. I was going through, I, I did one of my intensive research nights last night. I go through and tear through everything in the FT and various uh, various journals, and I get CNBC on in the background because I like that sort of random noise. And I just sort of put together this, this crazy market map where it sort of goes around in a big circle. Supply chains tightening, commodities rallying, inflation was being caused, then yields were rising. Obviously, then the Fed needed to start talking about raising rates and everyone's expecting that. Growth was then expected to maybe be slowing because that's what happens when you start to raise rates. And then the Ukraine invasion came as supply chains then tightened even more and are tightening even more and stuff is difficult to get around the world. You've got commodities rallying, obviously, my, not, my goodness. Growth is slowing, question mark. Inflation is still rising because of the things that I just mentioned. What sort of a, a corner is the Fed in at the moment and various central banks around the world and what sort of a corner are markets in at the moment as well? Go. Uh, a pretty tight one by all that from what you've mentioned. Um, look, look, I think where we are is we're, we're in a, a huge transition 
from where we've been for the last couple of years and to where we're going to. And that transition is very messy. And I think equity markets up until probably December uh, thought that was going to be a pretty smooth transition. And they thought that the Fed in particular was going to be able to raise rates very uh, accommodatively. They thought their rhetoric would stay very dovish and everything would be smooth sailing. Um, I think what they found out, that's not the case. And they didn't, most people, including the Fed, didn't pick up on the demand aspect of inflation. They only picked up on the supply aspect. And the expectation those supply chain issues would be solved um, thought, uh, yeah, led to that sort of temporary or transitory inflation thinking. Uh, and that's clearly not the case because there was a huge demand push, which happened as a result of the fiscal policy in particular that the central banks put through. Mm. So I think there's, there's two separate issues here in terms of inflation and in terms of geopolitics. And the inflation one is not going away anytime soon. And I think when you have a look at what's happening to commodity prices, as you mentioned, uh, if anything, inflation is going to get worse in the near term. And the peaking of inflation, which, which was expected um, pretty much in, in February, March this year in the US, uh, I think that peaking is likely to be delayed because of those commodity prices. Yeah. Now, it, it really, in a country like Australia, it really um, has an interesting impact because our national accounts will most likely look very strong because we're a net exporter of things like uh, you know, iron ore, sort of not related to energy, but we're a net, net exporter of coal, yep. of natural gas. And as a whole, we will probably benefit from these energy price increases. Yep. But when you actually look at the, the person on the street, they're getting hurt by higher petrol prices and higher inputs. Yep. Um, and that's at a time when we've got floods around a lot of New South Wales and where a lot of businesses are still struggling to reopen in places like Melbourne post-Omicron. Yeah. So this, this, this smooth transition, which was expected, um, is certainly not playing out that way. And I think that's what we as investors have to deal with. So I, I've, I've sort of got a bit of a thing about the smooth transition thing, because even though it was going to be a smooth transition and a peaking of inflation, and I was, I was a buyer of this story as well, I, I did think that we were going to see inflation for this month and come down, but then you've got to wait another month until that you know that the peak happens because it's backwards looking, and that's sort of how you know that, 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 that it's peaked. Anyone who's listening, I'm actually pointing at David and I've got little sort of my hands going, different gesticulations. But even with the smooth transition, the markets were still super jittery about what that actually meant because it, it potentially meant five, six, seven, eight, nine rate rises from the biggest central bank and the most important central bank in the world. And maybe potentially our own reserve bank would get off their asses and do something about rates as well, God forbid. So even that smooth transition caused a bit of a hassle. Now, if I point a theory at you that the Ukrainian-Russia situation, it's a conflict, so not a situation, it's, 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 it's actually a war. Do you think, I sort of speculated that a while ago that maybe we could provide cover for central banks to be able to delay the panic that was going on about the potential for eight or nine rate rises in the year of 2022? And as sick and cynical as it is possibly, do you think that that's a possible a chance that, is, that, that, that that's in play? I, I didn't think the Fed would hike uh, by 50 basis points in March, which was the general expectation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that would happen because they wouldn't have the inflation data sufficient to see that inflation had peaked yet. Mm. So I think the market got ahead of itself. And I think the, the Ukraine situation will allow the Fed only to hike by 25 basis points. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest impact. I think what what the world probably didn't expect to happen is that we had a confluence of factors which were 
um, all coming together at once. And the inflation, I think, expectation, you know, if, if you had inflation in the US at, say, 4%, it would allow the, the Fed to gradually ease off with quantitative easing. You wouldn't have any issue in Europe or, um, or Japan, and it would allow the Fed to hike rates fairly easily and at the same time use very dovish rhetoric. Mm. Now, when you have inflation rate closer to 7 the whole game changes, yeah, and no one expected that. So I think what you've now got is is a situation where the Fed will well behind the curve. Um, and at the data they had at hand, yeah, maybe arguably, yeah, appropriate to be behind the curve, but they ended up being well behind the curve. Japan has been forced into a potential policy change. For the first time, we've seen the ECB talk about higher interest rates, yeah, and we've seen the UK, New Zealand, Canada, Norway all hike interest rates. So. We've got a situation where inflation just blew out to such a level that no one expected. Now, when you look at that, the central banks have to do something. And the threat all of a sudden that, hey, it's not transitory. All right, we can get over that because the Fed thinks they can take care of it. But no longer is it not transitory. But now it's going to be 7% instead of 4 And no longer can we have quantitative easing easing off. We actually need to get rid of it pretty quickly. Yeah. So that's how the market reacted. They just went, wow, all of a sudden the game's changed with a couple of inflation prints. So when you look at that, the, the equity market in particular, which has been heavily overvalued for some time, <laughs> has to then come and, and, and have a look at the issues and say, well, hang on, if we're valuing things of, of long duration at excessively high PEs, yeah. we need to change our valuation metric for that. Yeah. And if we're looking overall and saying, well, look, we can justify uh, a, a market multiple of let's call it 20 then we have to actually reevaluate re that because the market can't grow earnings at the level we expected if we're going to have five to seven rate hikes. Yeah. So the whole world, as the equity market saw it, has changed pretty dramatically. Now, the bond market thinks it's temporary. When you have a look at still US bonds at 2%, yeah. there is no panic in the bond market. But what the, the biggest issue, I think, going forward, let's say take Ukraine, Russia out of it, the biggest issue going forward is what happens if the bond market changes minds? And then says, well, actually, we don't think inflation is temporary because we don't think that the supply chain issues have been fixed. We think that what's happening in Russia and Ukraine will keep uh, commodity prices higher. Hmm. Right? And we don't think even interest rates, even if they slow the economy, will hike what's happening at the underlying wage, wage growth uh, level. If that happens and you get bonds, and they're already at 2% for the US, 10 year they've dropped down to 1.7 ish. 17 and then 1.9 last night. Uh, exactly. Shot back up. It's, 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 it's question marks over the bond market. The volatility is enormous. Yeah, yeah. Now you take quantitative easing out, which takes out a huge buyer of the bonds and being the central bank. And if you've then got uh, 10 year bonds at 2.75% or 3% over the next year, which almost no one is predicting, then the equity market's got to reprice itself again. Yeah. And then now, you get what happened in January then you get a lot more volatility. Yeah. So now I'm not saying that's going to happen, but this is the risk that no one saw January really happen because they thought it would all be fairly placid. <laughs> and now no one sees really uh, inflation being stickier and no one sees the bond market going up to that level. And that's that's the potential shock. And I think investors need to be aware of that and in some ways position themselves for it if they can. Yeah. That, and and we'll, we'll get to the positioning at the end because I want to come back and talk to the, the direct investment side of that that's in there. And we, we touched on something here just which was which I really wanted to get into. And I, I'm going to ask, I'm going to try and ask every guest every week uh, what 
what stagflation means to you. Now, obviously, stagflation being if we start to see that rates do go up and growth does not follow with that and inflation still can, can, carries on in an upwards direction, that's that red. I, I always think about the Goldman Sachs strategy desk with their little red boxes about the Goldilocks scenario that we were in for the last few years, mm-hmm. a beautiful Goldilocks scenario that we are in. Rates were low, growth was, growth was good, markets boom in that, in that scenario. If growth slows down, rates go up to follow inflation. We're in that red box scenario, which is the, that's the death zone. That's the stagflation zone. What does it mean to you? And, and that's a pretty plausible scenario, that stagflation. I've got a little sneaky feeling that stagflation will be probably the most said word in the media, in the financial press, probably for the next week or two. Uh, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you at the adjustment of your portfolios if, if, if we do start going to a stagflationary environment? Well, firstly, I think we're a long, long way from stagflation. So we might disagree on that. No, no, go for it. Um, you know, I think when you look at the two components of stagflation, you've obviously got stagnant economy and you've got inflation. Okay. Now, there's zero doubt that we've got inflation. and But the stagnant economy argument, the, what we need is interest rates to have a dramatic effect or high commodity prices to have a dra- dramatic effect to actually bring economic growth down to such a level that we see no growth going forward. Yeah. Now, if you look around the world, you've got very different environments. So if you look at, say, India, stagflation is a real risk there. They import about 80-odd percent of their energy, um, higher energy prices having a real issue. It's going to slow down. You've got inflation running rampant there, and they've got a hike rates. Yeah. So you've got much tighter monetary policy. You've got costs going up. You've got uh, energy inputs going up. Growth is slowing already. So they've got a real issue. Um, if you look at China, you know, we've seen easing of monetary policy. We've seen no inflation at all. So we've got inflation less than 1%. Throughout most of Asia, inflation is relatively benign. Um, so Asia, you don't really see much of an issue, potentially except for India. Yeah. Um, Europe might be a very different situation because Europe is obviously highly influenced by what happens with Russia and, and Ukraine, and the energy prices there are soaring out of control as food prices are, yeah. and that is absolutely going to impact growth. Now, that's probably the biggest question mark, I think, in that stagflation equation for me. Food. Food. Yeah. But particularly in Europe. Yeah. In the US, not so much. I mean, you know, we've got very strong growth in the US. Um, you know, we've got an active Fed that's going to hike rates. They've got a mandate to do that. We've got quantitative easing coming off. Um, you know, you would have to see a significant downturn uh, due to, yeah, and there are, there, that is potential. Yeah, you've got the fiscal cliff coming through. But we're a long way from seeing stagnant growth in the US. So you've only got 50% of the stagflation argument in the US. Okay. In Australia, I think the situation, you know, we're, we're miles away. So if you look at where, where we are, and again, it comes back to the pain being felt by the people on the ground is different to the national accounts. And when you look at high commodity prices influencing coal uh, and, and the revenue we get from coal and natural gas, when you look at economic growth that came out in Q4 of 3.4% seasonally adjusted, then you start, you, you get to a world where even if growth halves, you know, we get to, you know, what, below 2% growth, but we're still not in that stagnant growth phase. What was it three, 3.4 in the last quarter? Of 21. Yeah, 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 which is amazing. In line, the, the yeah. sensational, right? Yeah. And so, so this why, you know, and, and I'll come to what if it happens because, you know, we can all be wrong, but I think we're a long way away from that in most of the developed world. Okay, okay. Ex-Europe. Yeah, Europe, Europe is a bit funny. Well, the, the, the anecdote that I had, and obviously I don't invest on it in anecdotes. He says something tongue-in-cheek because sometimes I do. But the I was thinking the other day that the wife said, uh, 
I can call it the wife because I know that she never listens to this or does has any interest in what I do at all. Hello. The uh, I was thinking she's just like, why don't we just go to Bunnings and just have a bit of a look around on the weekend? I was thinking, you know what? Maybe let's not and let's just keep that that petrol in the in the car instead of making that trip. I'm thinking that a whole planet, or you know, a whole developed Western world, making that same decision all at once suddenly of just saying, you know what, let's not take those summer holidays in, in June or July in the US and I sort of say, let's just not go ski because it's all a little bit exy and everyone just suddenly sort of has their own little mini recession. That's that, that that's the only scenario that I play out that, mm. that where, where all of a sudden you get this sudden contraction, like a mini recession that sort of comes in where everyone just has their own little and not necessary COVID, but instead of paying, because it really is starting to, to, to fill the pinch. I've never actually looked at, at the price of petrol before, and I was thinking, oh, this is nonsense. Yeah. This, is, this is absolutely ludicrous what's going in there. We're now going into a policy shift. This is my argument. And I know it's your show. I'm sorry, but this is my argument. But the, uh, the, that the policy shift that we're going into now on energy is going to be so crucial because right now no, no one can have a policy going forward that involves Russian gas or Russian oil or anything that's there, and that's a pretty large proportion of, of the world. Same with commodities, same with the amount of, of things that they produce in Russia. So your policy is now straight up, we will make the switch to nuclear, which takes time, or we will we will continue to enhance our nuclear energy. We'll make the move to hydrogen. We'll continue with our solar, with our solar panels and we'll continue with our wind generation, which means that you've got a prolonged period of this energy shock. That's the only way that I, that, 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 that's the only scenario that I plug in that actually then involves a sort of stagflationary shock. But what do you think of that? Look, uh, and, and firstly, I think it's really important as investors, we acknowledge different perspectives and different views because we're never always right. So, uh-huh. so I think it's really important to, to have these kind of debates. Yeah. Um, I think it really comes back to where in the world are we talking about? Um, and Europe in particular. You want to talk about Europe? Which is, well, let, let's get to that. Okay. But Europe in particular is very dependent on Russian inputs. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, we're not. And in Australia, yes, we are going to have higher input costs via energy, and we're already seeing that coming through. So outside of the numbers, I'm not sure where the RBA sees their numbers from, but the business people that I speak to are telling me the costs are going up 20 50%. Mm. And if they're shipping things over from offshore, it's gone up 400%, mm. and, and the prices have come down. So we are seeing it. I'm not sure where the RBA is getting their data, but it, the average business person on the street is not telling the same story. No. But we are, as I said, we are coming into an environment where we're getting more money from natural gas, more money from coal. We're seeing immigration come back into the economy. We're seeing tourism come back into the economy. We're seeing students come back in and we're seeing Perth reopen and we're seeing, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane reopen. So if we're talking Australia, I just don't see that economic slowdown to warrant stagflation. I, Elsewhere I, I in the world, that. definitely. Let's talk. Let's talk about Europe then. I mean, I, you've been interested to talk about Europe with the in, input costs. Was there anything <laughs> to go? Was there anything to go into there? Because now, I mean, looking at a Europe that suddenly cuts off Russia, and and everything that, especially Germany, everything that Germany has done over the last ten or fifteen years has led to this situation. As far as I'm concerned, it's <laughs> not a controversial opinion either. Um, so maybe well, in Germany it would be. I don't even think in Germany it would be. I mean, the, fa- the fact that you've got a country, I mean, the, the, the hot topic of the fact that now they're, they're, they're dedicating, what, 2% of their GDP to military is phenomenal. And, yeah. and, and, and that they're also, I think, I believe, uh, are renewing one of the nuclear plants that they were actually going to be winding down to cut off from the gas. And, and there's, a, unless we see an actual regime change in, in Russia, 
there's there's going to be a time before they actually start to go back to to, to, to rushing out. Nord Stream two declared bankruptcy yesterday. I think it was mm-hmm. on the China South China Press. So that talk about Europe. What, what happens? I mean, if, if there was anything else you wanted to go into Europe, now speak now. Look, I think um, you know, with, without being a geopolitical expert and simply looking at the situation. Well, we're all geopolitical experts. <laughs> We've become <laughs> that That's right. Um, you know, look, I think when you go back, a lot of it comes down to US leadership. Um, and I, I think the US leadership weakened under under Obama's administration, uh, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. Yep. Um, Trump obviously had no uh, benefit in terms of foreign pol- policy, except maybe to hold China account a bit more but he certainly fractured a lot of the relationships that the US have with NATO alliances. Mm. And then Biden has, has talked pretty tough over the last week, but except for that, has been a pretty benign US president, particularly offshore. Yeah. So you look at that and we've got close to 16 years where anyone around the world has been able to do whatever they want and the US has just allowed it to happen. Mm. And none of the European nations, to your point with Germany, have taken any stance to stop any of it happening either, and neither has any other Western country. Yeah. So... It's not just when, when you look at, you know, China's evolution, when you have a look at uh, Russia's evolution, when you have a look at even, you know, the sanctions against Iran and, and what's happened there. You know, the, the West has weakened over the last 16 years. Um, and I think that's what we've, what leads to what's happening now. Because not only do you have a weaker West, you have a very vulnerable West in the eyes of Russia because you've got Boris Johnson being, you know, very unpopular in the UK. Yeah. You've got Macron seeking re-election. You've got Angela Merkel coming out of Germany. Yeah. You know, you've got a fairly weak West where the opportunity is there to do something. And I think that's why Russia's done it. And we were getting closer and closer to potentially Ukraine being part of EU or being part of NATO, and they had to do something. Now's a good time. Yeah. So when you look at that, you know, I, I, and, and I have been wrong because I, I didn't think Russia would want an outright conflict. If you have a look at the previous ceasefires and the treaties with Minx and Minx II Treaty, um, that would have given sovereignty over parts of eastern Ukraine, which would have allowed Russia to control those regions. And, you know, leading into to the invasion, that's what I thought the Russians wanted because I just, and I've been thinking for this whole, yeah, what are we in now, day eight or day nine, Um I just haven't been able to see where the positive outcome is for Putin in this. I can't see an end game. No. If I, it, it, there's no way that I play the tape to the end, and that's my that's my expression of just going, show me what show me what this business trip looks like. Show me what this show me what this conflict looks like. Write write your report about how this looks at the end of this. I agree. At the end of this, I can't write this report. The report ends with that either someone, you know, someone someone knocks him off, and that's on the front page because. I just don't. I just don't see them just saying, "Oh, well, okay, we're just going to pack up and go home." Yeah. There's no. I just can't write that. And from here, where's the win for Putin? There's no. There's... Even if even if Ukraine step, like. even if Ukraine step back and go, okay, you can have Kiev and, and you can have Ukraine, right? Okay. Then the West completely cuts off Ukraine and Russia. All the Ukrainians leave and go into Poland, Romania. Yeah. You've got a country which you've just destroyed with no people left in it for no reason. There's no, and there's, it's 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 Europe's food bomb. Yeah. So I, food, food is the story of 2022. Food is the story for for, for 2032. It will be going forward. I think Putin backed himself into a corner where he felt he had to attack or lose face back in Russia, and mm. that would have lost him power. 
And he obviously didn't expect the kind of resistance that he's faced. And, you know, to my mind, he, he just felt, well, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. And if I have to do it, we go in, we'll win, you know, we'll have a few issues geopolitically, but they'll forgive me like they always have. Yeah, I, I, Very different now. The, uh, what's that, what's that, the expression? There's an expression that uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That, that, that Mike one. Tyson. Mike Tyson's, Mike Tyson's win. To, to which I respond was just like, if you go into the ring, with Mike Tyson and getting punched in the face wasn't part of your plan and what, what sort of strategy were you really going into because he was always going to do that. There's, more, there's another one that's, uh, that, that I've got, which is that no, no plan survives first contact with reality. And and I think that that's shown with reality with what they're going into. But, look, uh, there's a thousand podcasts that are, that are literally being released today uh, talking about this. So yep. we're not making any original ground on, on, on our geopolitical views that's there. But I, I don't see an outcome this one. Now, let's talk about – we'll just – Jump back to Europe really quickly, okay? So um, talking about rates, talking about the ECB, um, I have joked that looking at the uh, looking at the scenarios it is right now, it would seem easier if the ECB and the Fed had a standing army that they could then go and sort out what's going on over there, so that they could get rates back to some sort of a, 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 a less volatile level. Um, you know, for example, you got. Jay Powell, Jay Powell sends troops to the Belarusian border just so that he can stabilise rates because going from 1.7 to 1.9 overnight is not good and, and, and back again. So that uh, tongue-in-cheek probably makes a lot of sense, actually. So I was reading in the FT. Um, quote, this marks a shift in tone from the ECB. There was an article about the ECB. Several of its officials signalled before Russia invaded Ukraine that they expected it to normalise my emphasis, monetary policy by ending asset purchases earlier than planned ahead of an interest rate rise later this year. Now, normalise is for me a keyword. What does the normalisation of rates actually look like for you? And this is something I'm asking a lot of people that say, what, what, what does a normal rate environment look like for you? And there's no time for yeah. this. In a, I'll say in our lifetime, what does is, what is normalisation of rates mean for you? Look, to, to, in very simple terms, I would look at it as what, what is your base cash rate and what is your inflation and how does that look? So if you're looking at, you know, inflation, let's say, of, of 2.5% normally, um, and you're looking at, you know, non-expansion, non-contraction in terms of an economy, I would expect a normal rate to be at around sort of 2%, so you get to a 3.5% a sort of 10-year mark. Yeah. Now, that that's historically probably been a low normal rate, and central banks are now talking about that being a fairly uh, high normal rate. Um, and again, you know, coming back to the whole stagflation thing, every country is different, so you can't normalise the normalisation rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think what we've got is is ultra loose policy at the moment, which has gone on for too long, and we're seeing the repercussions of it. And the the idea was that well, the Fed and the ECB could always dial it back if need be, and rein in any any uh, sort of negative impacts. And that argument was made way back, you know, with Greenspan and Yellen and now Powell. So their, their sort of idealistic thinking that they can just dial it back to a normal rate, um, I think is completely flawed because no one actually knows what a normal rate is. <laughs> I'm hearing it, that a lot. It's the same like the RBA says, well, we want, you know, full employment. Well, what's full employment? You know, th- this is the big question. Is full employment 4% or is full employment 3.5%? They're guessing, yeah, you know. Yeah. And we all studied, yeah, Nehru and you know, natural rate of unemployment at university and, you know, you can come up with a nice equation for it. 
But in the real world, it's very different. And it's particularly in today's society where we've got people, you know, the, the, the participation rate has changed. The labour force has changed. There's a lot more people consulting. There's a lot more people not included in certain categories. A yeah. lot of older people coming back into the economy. So I think we're using pretty stagnant measures when we look at normal rates and when we look at natural rates of unemployment, which don't necessarily fit the environment. Yeah. And I think this is the biggest risk that the Fed is using an outdated model and the RBA is potentially using an outdated model as well. And that's why they tend to fall behind. That's, that's, that, that is a similar theme that I've been talking about and myself and Paul Colgan, who are uh, the, the hosts on the show as well, we've been talking about this for about the last five or six years. And David Scott too, um, now, uh, now at Osbis, been talking about this for ages, that the way that we're measuring stuff isn't the right way to be measuring the way that we're all working now. Yep. The, the, and there's a disconnect, and I honestly don't know what the solution is, what sort of revolution has to take place where someone all of a sudden says, you know what, we're actually going to start counting people differently because you're doing eight jobs yeah, and they're all over the place. And, and, and why do we need to count this as, anyway, that's a whole different yeah. kind of conversation. And, and it doesn't just limit to that. When you have a look at inflation and we have a look at the difference between the US and Australia and you have a look at, well, the US has, you know, about 40% in rental equivalents, which is effectively house prices. Mm. We have... Almost, no, we have nowhere near that, and we don't measure house prices. We measure things like, um, you know, construction and new new construction and renovations. So, if you've got house prices going up exactly the same in the US as what you've got in Australia, that will flow through to US inflation measures, but it won't get flow through into Australian inflation measures. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the key reasons why we've got such a different inflation rate to, to the US. Is that is is, is that actually so? Absolutely. The, the actual the, the nuts and bolts, and I mean, I, I've been over it, but then sometimes it just dumps out of my memory because I just don't, I just can't, I just can't perceive that that is possibly the case. Yep. And every country's got their own measures for inflation. Yeah. So the inflation measures are very different. And then obviously, said when you said before, like yeah, foods, the story of two thousand twenty-two, we don't even include food and energy prices in our core inflation, which the Fed look, which the RBA looks at, which which is absolutely a thing that that, that people are talking about, but people who actually go shopping. The same way that people who actually drive cars are saying, maybe we don't do that this time. People who go shopping aren't buying cauliflower yeah. this week. Very valid. Um, cauliflower, have you seen the price of cauliflower? They need a lot of cauliflower. Well, you know, <laughs> you're saving a fortune, mate. It's, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. That was a weed. You're a weed. It's, it, the cauliflower is a beautiful vegetable. I, I won't hear a word of that. But, no, it's, it, but things like that are, it, it is like going to the shelves, if it's actually on the shelves, and I hope that the, the, the flood is does recede and, and that people actually start to get some food on the shelves up, up north. But if the food's on the shelf, the, the, the price that it actually is, is just like, it's prohibitive yep. of you saying, you know what, I'm not going to buy those vegetables today. I'm going to go for a, a cheaper option. And that's, that's a real, that, that's real impact and that's actually changing people's, people's yep. behaviours. And if you add that up over every good in the petrol, you know, our inflation is much higher than what the official number looks like. Yeah. Well, I've, I've joked about, we've joked about option clearance rates on the show before. Well, I would love to. We know that option clearance rates aren't, aren't the same on Saturday as they were on. Uh, sorry, we know that option clearance rates aren't the same on Saturday as they should have been based on the number of properties that were listed on Friday. They just take properties off the market. I would, and, and I would love to do that if I'm reporting to clients and say, look, your portfolio was up 4% this month, but if I take out these stocks, it was actually up 7%. If, yeah. Imagine being able to do that. We do that with inflation too. Yeah, should be more against it. I absolutely agree. I mean, yeah, the 
the the the made up numbers that we see in the press and that you know the the authorities make decisions on are quite incredible. Yeah. Now, straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, you mentioned before about where you were leaning your portfolios into. Now, um, where are you investing now? For whom and what? With what? And how much? Yeah. Let, I mean, I'll probably point out three or four different um, sort of ways that we're investing or the opportunities. Um, you know, the first thing I think geographically you've got to look at sort of where where the environment is strong and where the environment's weak and where central banks are going to be aggressive and where they're not. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've got, you know, one of the only major central banks in the world which is easing rates is China. Yep. And what we've got is the, um, the, the Omicron variant and COVID easing, we're seeing a reopening there. And certainly the supply chain issues that we've seen in a lot of the world is much less in Asia than what it is elsewhere. Okay. So I think, you know, when you look at the Asian emerging markets, um, we're really seeing an attractive uh, place to allocate capital to. And, again, just looking at central banks in particular. So for, for me, I think that's much more of an attractive proposition. Um, you also have a, a much more attractive valuation for equities than what you have, particularly in the US. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, two months ago, three months ago, I would have said Europe looks very attractive as well from from the perspective of the ECB being slower than the Fed and from, you know, when you, when you look at growth picking up and obviously, um, you know, Europe was much more attractively valued. Yeah. Now, obviously, the situation's changed. Yeah, for sure. So you have to be much more, um, much more passive in terms of looking at Europe. Yeah. So I think in terms of equities, I certainly favour the, the EM and the Asian region. Yeah. Um, generally... What I would say is we are not in a in a beta market. So we're not in a market where you simply just put your money in an index fund and hope for the best. Um, that has been a, a fantastic strategy effectively since the GFC, mm-hmm. um, whereas now the world has changed quite a lot. And there may come a time when that is the case, but we're certainly in a market where we should be looking for alpha. Now, that doesn't mean that everything needs to be you know, aggressively and, and active and we need to be, you know, we can certainly have a portion of the portfolio in ETFs and passive management. But if you're looking for excess returns and if you're looking to drive alpha in your portfolio, it's not going to go from being, you know, long NASDAQ ETF. No. So I would be favouring alpha strategies versus beta strategies. Okay. Um, the second thing is, the third thing, sorry, is looking at being able to harness volatility and being able to take the short side of trades in addition to the long side. Yeah, okay. So if you're looking at, you know, higher interest rates, you need to be able to have a position where you can short treasury bonds. Yeah. Um, now, for the most for the most, for most, people, most investors, that's a very hard thing to do, and you can't do it um, without the use of complex derivatives. But, yeah, sort of looking at managers that can do that and they're not simply beholden to upside in markets – um, is certainly very attractive at the moment because the opportunity set has widened dramatically. So currencies are now moving like they haven't moved before. You mentioned interest rates with US 10 years jumping around. Extremely volatile to trade it, but the opportunity set to trade it's increased. Yeah. And we haven't seen a time like this since, yeah, effectively since five or six years before the GFC even. Um, so the opportunity set for that, harnessing volatility, using volatility, um, and really trading around markets has increased quite dramatically. Yeah. So they're the three things where I'd say, you know, looking for managers that can be pragmatic, 
um, you know, look at being active and tactical with their allocations um, is, is certainly the environment we're in at the moment in my mind. Yep. Even even myself, just, just last night, sorry, yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I was talking to someone thinking 1.7% on the 10 year is probably a bit low. It's probably going to spike back. Uh, I didn't think it would be overnight. But you are you are correct. Going short going short bonds, even just via an ETF, is actually kind of more difficult now than it used to be. It sort of sends yeah. a leveraged product um, and can be difficult for retail clients to get access to. Absolutely. So, yep, that's a, that's a fair enough opinion. Just coming back to the 10-year, what, what's really interesting is when you have a look at even last week when, um, you know, when Russia first invaded, significant risk-off event that we haven't seen, you know, for many, many decades yeah. really. Um, the US 10-year only fell to about 1.93%, I think, from memory. Mm. So it fell about 10 basis points. Now, I, I was actually thinking that given it only fell 10 basis points, we're probably going to see a low of about 1.9% in the 10-year. And anything below that should be a, a real opportunity to trade it. Yeah. Now, you know, I didn't expect it to go to 1.7. No, um, <laughs> that was, that was, that was yeah. the market. The market behaviour is, is a bit erratic at the moment. So you do need to be careful of erratic markets and some of these really sharp movements. So do, do, now, do you see that being a case for the second half of the year? Where do you see sort of the, the, the rest of 2022? I mean, we're already looking at the end of potentially the end of the, end of the first quarter. Uh, yeah. So what's your what's your plan for the rest of the year? Look, I, I don't think that changes too much. Yeah. Um, you know, the central bank position hasn't changed because inflation hasn't changed. And even if they pause for a month before... Yeah, the, the Ukraine-Russian situation will not stay at its elevated state for too much longer. It, it just can't. Either Ukraine will get destroyed or Russia will have to retreat or there'll have to be some kind of deal. There's a coup or something like that. Have to be. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise there will be no Ukraine left if this happens for another month. So, you know, we will get some clarification of what's happening there. And then I think we get back to the inflation story. Yeah. And we still get back to a world where inflation's too high Central banks have to act. They have to withdraw the quantitative easing. They have to hike rates, and that's going to have an impact on markets, and that impact is what you want to be positioned for. Yep. So that, to me, is is the way to look forward. I think when you look at probably, yeah, it's probably two, three months away now, um, I think we're going to get a really good opportunity to go long equities. Yeah. We're just not there yet. There's now, a time. There'll be a time? Yes, there'll be a time. Yeah. And what's, what's your trigger for that? I don't know until it's there. To be quite <laughs> yeah. um, you, you never know until it's there. And what we've got, you know, let, let's call, you know, markets down about 10% at the moment. Um, you know, should they be down 20 before you jump in? Uh, Maybe. Are some people going to jump in if they're down 15? Maybe. I don't like round numbers. I like a thing. I like a shift, yeah. a momentum shift that goes on. And, uh, and then- well, that's why I say you don't know it until it's yes, there. Yes, it's, so you, you really got to have a look at how the market's playing out and, and what's happening there. Um, you know, can the market come down another 10% from here, given valuations and giving higher rates and liquidity being withdrawn? I'd say absolutely it can. Okay. Um, you know, is, is that a decent buying opportunity? Well, for a lot of people it will be. You know, there's some fantastic growth stocks out there which are down 30 40 50% from their peaks. Um, are they willing to take a risk on now? Yeah, and this is where every investor is different. For some, they're willing to take a risk on now. For others, they want to see it going down a bit further. Mm. Me personally, I'd like to see it going down a bit further before I jumped in. Yeah, there's certain, there's certain things that, that I'm holding fire on at the moment. Things like, I mean, 
Google has been a, a, a long-held favourite of mine, and I was loud and proud saying I just need to get rid of it right now because I just don't think – I think it's a great company, for example, obviously. Yep. But I just think that maybe the smell is going to be a bit off it now with everything that's going on, and I'll probably be able to get it a little bit cheaper, for example. And I'd maybe just rather sit in silver now and just sit in cash for, for, for a while while all of this sort of boils over. There's a time that, that, that I'll absolutely just have to buy more Google. And we had – on the live show last week, we had the 5.8s account um, from Singapore. He's, um, he does some amazing work, but he talked about going into Google at, at a point that was right for him. Yeah. As well, and his fund that he, that, that he works exactly with. Right. Everyone's got a spot for that one as well. Uh, myself, I'd only be looking at the big players in in the Nasdaq. Uh, that's the way that I'm looking at. And and what you just mentioned before, I wouldn't own the whole index. I've got no interest in owning the whole index. I only want to own the quality companies at the top, the big players. Um, I don't know if you disagree with that. At the moment, I would say yes. Yeah. Um, and again, it really depends on how much the market falls. If the market falls 30%, I would just say just buy beta. Yeah. And then the world changes and you go, let me just ride that back up. Um, if the market doesn't come down too much further, absolutely. Look at those high-quality stocks, particularly the US tech stocks where you've got strong cash flow generation, market dominance, and you say, well, look, I can get this 25% cheaper than what I did before. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've missed that entry or if you if you took profits before, then, you know, it might be a really interesting time to jump back in. All right. Now, um, you mentioned before, and sorry for springing this on you, um, but the, there was a, you said something about a new fund, and I'm just going to jump at you on this one. What, are you, what is this new fund? Uh, so Carrara Capital is, is just in the middle of, or just at the end of closing um, its seed equity round uh, to build a global multi-strat hedge fund. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, absolutely. So it's pretty rare in Australia for these kind of funds. Yeah. Um, they're certainly more the you know, more the sort of um, the reign of New York and London and Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, but I, I see a real opportunity to, to do it here and to execute on some of the ideas that we've talked about today yeah. um, and to build a business that gives people the opportunity to invest, not just in equities, not just in property, but, you know, utilising, you know, the opportunity to invest in, yeah, you might be long Aussie dollar versus Russian ruble or you might be, you know, short treasury bonds or you might have a steepener on the UK rates curve. Yeah. Um, but just looking at generating alpha, which is very uncorrelated to equities and Australian property and, and allowing people to have that opportunity set. Sensational. All right. Well, and when does that kick off or are you raising now? Is it like a... Yeah, so we're hoping to close the deal um, by the end of March, a little bit earlier than that, mm. and then we're hoping to launch 1st of June and then we'll be taking it out to wholesale investors and, um, yeah, Hopefully, raising a little bit of capital and making people money. That's uh, that's pretty exciting. I, I always like that sort of stuff. That that the new as opposed to just oh, yeah, here's a here's a simple long long only fund that we've got a slightly different. Says, says the guy that sort of does the same thing. But anyway, okay. so <laughs> that's uh, that's that that is amazing, mate. And, and I'm, I'm really I'm really happy about that. Known you for a long time. That's uh, that's I'm stoked about that. Speaking of that, I've, I've known you for a while. And you've got a really interesting game, which you introduced to me a few years ago. After after a good lunch around the table, the conversation gets a little bit quiet sometimes, although not with our crowd, but sometimes you get a bit of a lull. And you do this cool thing, again, sorry for spreading this on you, but uh, you you get everyone to go around the table and give you, what is it, the best 30-second or best 20-second, best 30-second pitch for a business idea or an idea? 
it's 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 the most fun that I, I think I've had after lunch that, that, that I could possibly imagine. Yeah. What's have you had any amazing ideas that, that are possibly out there? Maybe someone will grab a hold of one of these ones and, and, and run with it and make a billion dollars. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, except for the fund I'm building. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's been done before, but I hope you do. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, you have put me on the spot there a little bit. Um, now, I think the what 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 we're seeing is at the moment segregation between a few ideas, um, and we're just starting to see those ideas merge. Now, that sounds broad, but what I mean by that is. If you if you like, you know, clean energy is something which has always been standalone. Yeah. Technology has been standalone, yeah. and we've also we've always had a separation between sort of the wholesale market for energy and the retail market. Yeah. Um, you know, to my mind, there's a real opportunity there to bring that all together and say, you know, instead of instead of fighting over, you know, your AGLs and your origins and who owns the energy, is there a way that we can actually look at technology and look at the energy market and allow, if you like, retailer mums and dads to be part of that game. Now, effectively, it's like if you think about, say, NFTs and you think about sort of breaking down large, you know, sort of large offerings into very small micro you know, sort of tokens, which anyone can invest in, or if you look at some of the real estate ideas like bricks and sort of breaking down a large uh, real estate offering into a, yeah, micro offering for people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I would, I would think that is something which would be really interesting okay. because that would allow people to participate in something which would help the environment, the yeah. community, and also let them drive some of the energy policy. Which I think you mentioned energy policy before, which has been just missing in Australia for so long. Yeah. Um, now I don't know how that's done because that's sort of out of my realm of expertise. But to me, I think that's pretty exciting. Well, there's an idea for you, um, boys and girls out there. And thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, unless you've got anything more to say, David, thank you. No, thank you. Appreciate um, it. I'll close the show up. Now, don't forget uh, to subscribe to the show, rate us and review, and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, this show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners, a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specialises in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to invest at bridgestreetcapital.com.au. Uh, yep, now you can find us on iTunes at The Bib Show, which is probably where you listen to this show now anyway, so I don't know why I'm telling you that. But wherever you get your podcast, good luck to you. Uh, we're on Twitter at the underscore bib underscore show, and we're on Facebook too for some reason. I still don't know why. Um, I should probably just delete that account. Facebook's dead. Just search the show. Uh, are you on Twitter, though? I am, but not active. Good enough. Uh, <laughs> um, Google, if you want to know, you want to know who that person is that following your tweets, it's David Sikorsky. Uh Google Wheel and Capital. I've got my own little site um, where I put all this stuff up, follow the links to the Bib Show, um, and where I do my bits and pieces. Um, David, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank um, you. It means so much. Um, let's uh, let's do this more often. The show is produced by Drunk Monkeys, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Have yourself a great evening, and stay safe.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.